Thursday, December 22nd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the play voted the greatest in football history. It's called The Immaculate Reception. The receiver was a Pittsburgh Steeler fullback named Franco Harris, who died Tuesday at the too young age of 72. Now, I have a specific Franco Harris memory from my boyhood. It was the last game the New York Jets ever played at Shea Stadium. And Franco Harris and the Steelers came in and trounced the home team. My dad, afterwards, took me to the Steelers' exit, where they were to go from the bowels of that decrepit stadium to their bus. And there... Beset by autograph seekers was Franco Harris. And you could tell that Franco, trying to be a nice guy and sign as many autographs as he could, also needed eventually to make it to the bus. And there was no one there to help him. So my dad wasn't a cop, but he knew how to be authoritative, to control a crowd. Plus he had, I don't know, half a dozen relatives who were cops. And he bellowed, Franco, follow me. And then Harris, perhaps thinking there was a badge behind the bellow, perhaps not caring, just wanting to get out of the crowd, obliged. And my father acts as Franco Harris is blocking back while the 6'2", 230-pound All-Pro follows his lead. Franco, my dad says, after he breaks free of the crowd and is in the clear with nothing but daylight in the end zone of the bus to think about, Franco, he says, just sign that one autograph of the kid... Just sign that one autograph for the kid right behind you. Right there. Just just turn around. Sign his autograph. I was, I think, 10, maybe 11 at the time. I remember Franco Harris's camel hair coat. But there was no chance I could reach around his broad shoulders to hand the mass of all pro a pen and paper. I knew I wasn't getting an autograph. I didn't care. Autographs have always seemed weird to me. Just following behind Franco Harris so closely while my father cleared the way, it is a memory much better than any scrawl on a piece of paper. And memory is what so many fans retain of that famous catch, the Immaculate Reception, in 1972. Here is how Kurt Gowdy and Al DeRogatis originally called it on NBC. Last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Tatum. Tipped off. Franco Harris has it. As every football fan can picture, if they close their eyes, it was a last minute, last 22 seconds, in fact, fourth down heave from Steeler quarterback Terry Bradshaw. It was broken up aggressively, as was his want, by Raider defender Jack Tatum. But before the ball could reach the Three Rivers Stadium turf, there was Franco Harris scooping it up, scampering and stiff-arming his way into legend. Like the act from which the Immaculate Reception gets its name, there is some dissension over the legitimacy of the play. NBC's cameras did not record the moment of reception. An NFL film crew examined their footage, and they also found they didn't have on film the moment the ball was caught, or, has always been the Raiders' contention, was scooped off the ground. Today, we would demand that angle. We'd certainly have it. Football is now the number one piece of television entertainment in America. We devote 20 cameras to each game, or five or six times that for a Super Bowl. 
But in 1972, what we have was the angles we had, and then we had the referee's decision not to blow a whistle. We had shock. We had cheering. We had history. And that was it. There was no expectation of review. There was no statutory authority to give us a review. And there was no actual footage to pour over, even if the rules allowed it. I actually prefer that versus the setup of today. Now we engage in forensic videography. I've used that phrase a lot. It is a fun pastime, forensic videography, but it's different from the actual pastime of being entertained by sports. This isn't this argument here. It's not a mistakes are part of the charm of the game argument. It's more of a to demand that the game be mistake-free degrades the experience argument. What televised football entertainment means is now something close to an exercise in assaulting mistakes, not a joyous improvisational sporting burst of surprise. You either have surprise with the understanding of imperfection, or you have perfection at the cost of surprise, only there's no such thing as perfection. So striving for it, and not just interminably waiting for the results, but also the suppression of excitement that confirms that the replay does in fact warrant a fan's emotional reaction, it takes away something from the game. It's the enemy of entertainment. The Immaculate Reception was legendary, and like much of the stuff of legends, it means that it hangs in the air as somewhat uncertain. It lives as an emotion, an experience, not as a piece of certified nonfiction. And Franco Harris, too, was a legend. And for Steelers fans, certainly, and the occasional Jet fan in awe, he was a bit of a mythological figure. Even Harris himself couldn't place his immaculate reception in the realm of the real or the remembered. But the hard part is I, I remember none of that. I have no recollection of anything. Like I have no visual of the ball. I have no visual of me thinking, you know, hey, you know, catch it. Don't break stride. You know, my first memory is stiff arming Jimmy Warren going into the end zone. Franco Harris died the night after that interview was recorded. On the show today, I shall spiel about ghost guns. But first, the protests in Iran over the death of Masa Amini continue and represent a vulnerable moment for the Islamic Republic. Heather Williams is the acting associate director of the International Security and Defense Policy Program at RAND. And she joins us up next to see where Iran goes from here. Ever since 22-year-old Masa Amini died in the custody of Iranian police, protests have roiled that country. Furious demonstrations, hijab burnings, hair cutting, shared social media posts, they've not abated. The Iranian soccer team did not sing the words of the anthem at the World Cup. Prominent film stars have been arrested. And earlier this month, Iranian Attorney General Mohammad Jafar Montazeri suggested the government was making its first big concession to the protesters by disbanding the morality police. But is this gesture what it seems? Joining me now is Heather Williams, who served on the National Intelligence Council, where she was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Iran and Acting National Intelligence Officer for that country. She is now the Acting Associate Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Program at RAND. Heather, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. 
So I want to get to the question I asked, is it what it seems? But let's go back a little bit. There have been protests. There ha- There's a whole green movement in Iran and protesting against the government has costs, but it's not unknown. How are these protests different in terms of either intensity or how widespread they are, or even the ask? Yes, I think one primary difference that we see in in these protests compared to, as you mentioned, protests we've very often seen in Iran in the past, be it for political, initial instigating reasons or economic reasons, is that um, one, that that these protests um, were instigated by a social reason um, and, and really have been a galvanizing event for women and their allies and and just Iranians in general, um, but also that they have been so sustained compared to other protests. So um, a lot of protests we've seen kind of escalate, 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 um, and they often take on an increasing anti-regime bent as they go. These protests started as pretty clearly against the regime very early on, um, and rather kind of having that you know, increasing intensity trajectory to a real climactic moment and run in with the regime. Um, they have inte- instead just continued kind of day after day in different parts of the country um, to different degrees. And, and we're now in the fourth month of sustained protests. And I think that's really um, important and a little different than what we've seen in the past. So what do the protesters want? I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions who sympathize, they might want different things, but do they just simply want this regime to remain in power but loosen the rules? Do they want a reform of hijab rules specifically? Do they want to depose the regime? Right. As you mentioned, individuals can be motivated by different things. They could have stronger kind of personal drivers in this, but um, the core uh, message inside of this these protests has been about dress code laws and the restrictions that exist against Iranian women. Um, Iranian women are a very generally well-educated population, uh, particularly compared to elsewhere in the Middle East. Um, they are, uh, I think, very um, sort of forward-minded here, and they chafe under the repressive uh, rules of, of the regime. Um, so, so the instigating reason has been the the requirement to wear a hijab, to wear a head covering. Um, but the hijab, in many ways, is symbolic of um, the Islamic Republic, of this repressive regime, um, of its gender discrimination policies. Um, so, and, and in the sense that it is symbolic of the Islamic regime, I think that in many ways is part of how this has been an anti-regime protest um, from the start at its core. I think the demographics of the country are very important when considering this. This is a youth protest movement, but this is a very young country, right? It, it is a young country, um, but it's been a young country for a few decades, right? So, so that, that youth is now starting to get into its 30s and, and its 40s. Um, so, uh, but in general, it, it has a younger population. And these protests are particularly um, predominantly the, the youth. Um, but I think they have a lot of support amongst other uh, members, older members of the, the population. Um, I think that the, the youth that we see, those that are 20 and under who are protesting, I think one big difference there is their lack of fear or their willingness to take on the risks that it involves to 
stand up against this regime, which is perfectly willing to use force against them. Do the protesters, beyond wanting reforms on gender lines or with the hijab or with repression, are they demanding wholesale changes in terms of the vote, in terms of Iran's foreign policy? Iran's, I know everyone is, or mostly everyone is, upset with the sanctions that they face. How much do they blame the regime for bringing those sanctions on to themselves? Those are the kind of demands that we have typically seen out of protests historically. So the Green Movement, for example, um, which was protests after a very blatant manipulation of the Iranian presidential election in, in 2009. Um, those were about, where's my vote? You know, I voted in this election and you clearly never counted those ballots because you announced the voting results of handwritten ballots hours later. Um, in contrast, you know, there there are some... There are some abstract mottos of these protests, you know, about women, about freedom. Um, but they, there has also been a very clear anti Khamenei line, anti Khamenei being this, the supreme leader, Khamenei. Um, that is a slogan that historically um, a lot of Iranian protesters have been afraid to utter um, and, and something that's been very prominent in these protests. So I'd say these are, these are anti-regime. They're not looking for moderate changes. They're not looking for reforms on the margins. They're challenging the system as a whole. How inextricable, how connected to the repression of women as represented by the hijab, but also in other ways, how fundamental is that to the fundamentalist religious nature of the regime? I think it it doesn't have to be fundamental to Islam, but they have made it fundamental to their regime. You know that they have created this as one of their foundational pillars. Um, so it, they have tried to make it one of their strengths. And so therefore I think it is one of their own vulnerabilities. And I think that's why it's so hard for them to try to make concessions on this point. Um, because the Islamic Republic is in many ways, um, ideologically and morally empty. And so this is one of those kind of hollow, uh, pillars that it is attempting to stand on. Well, tell me about that, how it's empty. Uh, I would critique it as an outsider, but even internally, there's so much hypocrisy there. It's not even consistent with its own interpretation of the Quran, for instance. I mean more the fact that um, the Islamic Republic, it is supposed to be a theocracy. It is supposed to be um, you know, a country where everything can be ruled by religion, can be ruled by the Islamic jurisprudence, the supreme leader. Um, but yet by trying to do that, we now have a deeply um, sort of secular or unreligious population. There is not strong religiosity amongst the Iranian population. They've turned so many Iranians off of religion um, because of the heavy-handed policies of this regime, because of the corruption and repression of this regime. Um, so they have created a country um, where so many Iranians are not believing Muslims anymore because of what they have made religion into. Um, and so that's what I mean by the fact that this symbol of Islam, of, of a woman's veil, um, which isn't even a very strong tenet of Islam, um, has become a symbol and, and a really empty, hollow symbol. I know that you've written that 
we maybe think of uh, Iran as a dictatorship. I know the protesters yell things uh, like death to the dictator in, uh, in Persian or Farsi, but it's not really, right? How important is that in understanding the real system of government in Iran? Well, the Iranian government is an authoritarian regime. Um, I don't think when when you say a dictatorship, I think of a single strong man, you know, similar to what we think of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And I do not believe that Khamenei should be thought of as a dictator. He is an authoritarian leader, to be sure. Um, but it is a, um, a th- th- there's a deep, institution there that is perpetuating um, this this state. It's not all about one person's wants or one person's drives, even though he is the one who ultimately makes the decisions. But there also is some actual, there are some actual elections. And uh, we talked about this a little bit, but more or less actual election results are honored. That's right. There are some some tenets um, in of democracy inside the Islamic Republic. Uh, the The regime doesn't allow individuals who are far outside kind of their framework to run for election. That's not necessarily surprising. Most electoral systems are designed to kind of narrow the ideological spectrum of who who really is competing. Right. Um, I think of it as the system where um, they rig the game and then Iranians get to play the game to some extent. They still get to go to um, a a voting booth and um, they get to vote. Uh, And typically those votes have been counted. And I, and I do think that presidents like uh, Mohammed Khatami and Hassan, even, even Hassan Rouhani, Rouhani had some, um, some belief in change or reform, so, some some desire to help uh, change the system a, a bit. Um, the current president, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, is not a reform-minded individual. Um, I, I do think one benefit of the fact that there are these tenets of democracy inside Iran is if there were to be a change in regime, the Iranian public, they understand what it is to vote. They understand what it is to go to a, a booth and cast your vote privately and put that in a ballot box and have that be counted. And, and that's a kind of a foundation of democracy that goes back 100 years, um, some tenets of democracy in Iran, be it a parliament or other voting, that a lot of other countries in the Middle East didn't do, do not have, did not have um, when there were changes in their government. What's your assessment of how legitimate the dissolution of the morality police is? I haven't seen strong evidence that they have been dissolved. So um, there was a statement implying that uh, and then some countering statements by the regime saying that they were not resolved uh, or, or were not dissolved. Ultimately, the morality police is kind of a part of Iran's police force um, that enforces these dress codes. Uh, it's, you know, thugs or enforcers that have sustained these policies about dress codes have existed since the Islamic Republic was established in 1979. Um, this current kind of iteration of the morality police wasn't established till 2005. Um, but I, I think that even if it were to be disbanded, that doesn't mean the law goes away. That doesn't mean that there isn't some institution that is enforcing the law, even something akin to the morality police, a kind of an office dedicated to enforcing dress codes and enforcing laws against women could be reformed under a different 
banner. Um, so you know, there, there is significance, I think, in not having some part of the police force that is all about enforcing morality rules. Those sorts of institutions tend to attract the worst kind of of thugs and bullies in the system. It's kind of just draws, draws them in. Um, but I wouldn't put too much stock in the discussion right now about the morality police being disbanded. Yeah, I think the uh, history of policing shows that if there is an elite force that is drawing a lot of criticism, it's pretty easy to disband that force and say, oh, we've attacked the problem. But of course, the things that the force were doing would be taken up by other elements within the police. That happens everywhere in the world. It's a natural reaction to a flashpoint of protest. Do you think that there is a chance that, well, how would this work out if the government were to back off and say, we won't enforce the hijab ban so strictly. We won't necessarily, if we see a woman with uh, strands of hair out, we won't feel compelled to detain her and we certainly won't go overboard in terms of beating her or even uh, killing her. It will be maybe something like a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to this. A relaxation of the rules and therefore there'll be a retrenchment. We'll get what we want, which is to still rule the country. Would that be possible? Would they see that? Would the leaders see that as once you capitulate on one element of the asks, you're essentially done for? So one, I would say that it is not the Iranian government's style to do that via proclamation. So they might do that in practice. Um, and that that's actually what you see some news about. Well, the morality police don't seem to be out as much. And, and they might subtly kind of tell the law enforcement police, don't be so aggressive or send other signals through the system subtly. But it's not their style to um, make that formal announcement. You know, we we will back off. They'll just start doing it. And then um, you'll kind of play the societal games of women trying to see if they can slip their headscarves back further and further and further before there, there are consequences. Um, to your kind of larger question, I do think there is concern um, by the regime that if they start to make concessions, then they just appear weak. Uh, and that doesn't actually get them out of this situation. Heather Williams is the acting associate director in international security and defense policy program at RAND. And I would recommend her recent article in Politico magazine, Don't Tell Your Non-Work Friends About the Decapitations. It's about working in the intelligence community and living with trauma, which she also writes about authoritatively at RAND. Heather, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. As the bomb cyclone threatens to tear apart or, I don't know, maybe accelerate the triple-demic, I offer to you another newly minted horseman of the apocalypse that certainly is pernicious, but I'm beginning to think maybe less a threat to good rule and order than more adhering to the good rule of TV news, which is if you scare suburbanites, you win in the ratings. I give you the ghost gun. Spooky, scary. Ghost guns, or guns easily assembled via a kit, represent an unprecedented threat to our safety, as NBC News explains in a narration where all the punctuation is replaced with gunfire. This is a ghost gun. There's no record of it. It took no background check. And we have no idea how many like it are on our streets today. 
because it's built from a perfectly legal pre-packaged kit and then made into a working firearm in the amount of time it takes to build an IKEA cabinet, just over an hour. Although, when there are those two extra hex nuts left over after building your gun, the worst that can happen is in fact worse than the bottom drawer bottoming out. The New York Times reports... Ghost guns, firearm kits, bought online, fuel epidemic of violence. They are untraceable, assembled from parts, and can be ordered by gang members, felons, and even children. They are increasingly the lethal weapon of easy access around the U.S., but especially California. The words are alarming, and so are the facts, but not commensurately so. What I mean is that fuel violence, that seems to indicate that it's a main or the main cause. It is adding to the violence, a part of the violence, or increasingly the lethal weapon of easy access. Yet, yes, 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 the use of ghost guns, since it is a new technology, is in fact going up. But if you look at the statistics, even in this report, the New York Times quotes California law enforcement as saying that 25 to 50 percent of guns recovered at crime scenes have been ghost guns. I've actually looked at a number of statistics from the actual police departments, and I have yet to see a number confirmed to be as high as even the lowest estimate, 25%, which isn't to say that they're not a problem, but it's just to say that last year the LAPD seized 1,921 ghost guns, but that was out of more than 8,000 total guns, so that was 22% of the total recovered. The same 22% figure applies to San Diego. But the number is rising every year, as NBC reported. Last year, the LAPD recovering more than double the number of ghost guns compared to the year before in the weapons used in at least 24 homicides in the city. In Philadelphia, the police department recovered 571 constructed ghost guns, more than five times the number in 2019. As 3D printers become more ubiquitous, no doubt fueled, there's again, I'm using the fueled, by lockdowns where people did everything from home, the number is certainly increasing. But that 571 in Philadelphia figure, that is a lot of guns, too many guns, too many guns of any kind, pales in comparison to the 5,920 total guns recovered at crime scenes in Philly. Which brings me to my problem, or maybe more accurately, my puzzlement over such headlines as New federal rule has done little to stem the spread of ghost guns in the New York Times this week. It's true, but the urgency of stemming the tide of this one type of weapon seems a little bit misplaced because ghost guns, what's the problem with ghost guns? Ghost guns are so hard to trace, so readily available for everyone, even criminals who should not be able to acquire guns legally. But everything I just said there about ghost guns is also true of regular guns. America is awash in guns, of which there are practically no obstacles to acquisition. But you got to worry about these ghost guns. Why? Oh, because there's practically no obstacles to acquisition. It's not exactly, ghost guns aren't exactly a loophole around a rigidly enforced statue. It's more like a backdoor entrance to a building where the door is already cracked wide open and significant political and social forces are quite opposed to ever closing it. The reality of ghost guns is scary, but only a couple degrees more scary or troubling than the danger of guns guns, corporeal guns. In ghost guns, that phrase alone, we have alliteration, 
which takes a shibboleth of danger, the gun, and marries it to the ghost, another worldly notion that combines the ineffable with the undead. That is the scariest way to think about these guns. That is the most attention-grabbing, but maybe not the most accurate or even the most interesting. The reason why San Diego and LA are seeing a much higher percentage of ghost gun seizures as compared to regular guns than, say, Philadelphia is because Pennsylvania's gun laws don't work at all, and California's, well, they fail less badly. You can't say they work, but they're maybe doing something, and that something is prompting the rise of ghost guns. So it does show that there are some obstacles that have some effect. It's unclear if there wasn't this technology, if any of the people who've used a ghost gun to murder someone would have just not murdered at all. They may have tried to get a different kind of gun that was slightly less easy to acquire. But of course, it's easy to say, wait, what was the tool used in a murder? We've got to ban the tool. Ghost guns are, at least for Californians, simply the easiest tool to acquire, not yet for Philadelphians, but they could be. I say prevention or bans or serious restrictions on ghost guns are certainly a policy I would sign on to, but no more urgent and not much different from gun regulations that we need to enact across the board and yet never do. In some ways, what ghost guns became are a symbol of how the rest of our gun policy is going, which is to say not very well. Their danger is indeed haunting, but almost entirely because they're just a subspecies of the truly dire specter we live with all the time. And that's it for today's show. The Gist's producer is Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. The COO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. When you talk about Christmas miracles, here's the miracle of all miracles.